We are in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, and Carrie Phillips, uh, one of our small group leaders, is going to read for us our passage. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carrie. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we enter this passage. Uh, So would you join me before we dive in? Jesus, uh, you lead your sheep uh, to green pastures, and you call us uh, to feast at the table of your word, um, that it is for our good and for our nourishing, uh, that it has the ability to be not only um, something that would correct and guide us, but something that would feed and sustain us, that it would be sweeter than honey. You're, you're, You're able to turn even very hard passages into something that is sweeter than the honeycomb. And so we need that this morning as we come to texts that, um, potentially have history and pain uh, with even just words that are in them. So Holy Spirit, guide us now. Guide us into your word like a good shepherd. And most of all, would you uh, cast a giant spotlight on Jesus, the true subject of this passage and the one who your whole word is about. Help us to see him. Help us to behold him. And wherever we are in our relationship with him, Holy Spirit, cause us to be more in awe and more in love with him than when we, the way we were when we walked in. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are uh, nearly done with our fall series on the book of Colossians. Uh, next week we'll wrap it up. Uh, And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll begin our Advent series. This is our second to last sermon in Colossians. If you are visiting with us or haven't been uh, around, let me just give a brief overview uh, to help give us some context. The Apostle Paul writes this book while he's in prison in Rome. Uh, He is awaiting trial in Rome, and he hears about a church plant in Asia Minor across the Mediterranean, and he writes to this young church plant, and he says to them, I'm writing to you to help mature you, to help grow you up, to help strengthen you in your faith, and I, I long to see you mature in this mystery of grace, that what Jesus did and who Jesus is is what I want you to build your life on, and it will change how you view everything, including yourself. And I'm writing to help grow you up in that, to help stand you on that firm foundation. And, and I want to see you mature in your understanding of this mysterious grace of God shown to us in Jesus. And so today in just uh, this little section, uh, Paul is continuing this theme that we began discussing a few weeks ago when we began chapter 3. 
Paul has begun this dialogue where he talks about, uh, hey, Christian, if you are a member of the kingdom of Jesus, you're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And now, with your new self, Christian, your new truest self, you're going to want to run back to your old closet and your old wardrobe and put on your old clothes that used to fit you so well. But those clothes don't fit you anymore. The clothes of wrath and bitterness and lust, they don't fit you anymore. They fit great on your old self. Your new self is to be clothed with compassion and tenderness and humility and forgiveness. Those clothes fit the new self perfectly. They're custom tailored to the new self. And so Paul is admonishing the Colossian church, because of who Christ has made you now, set down your old wardrobe and put on the new wardrobe. So he's been in this dialogue of old self and new self. And last week, we looked at this question. We, we asked this question. Paul not only says this new set of clothes fits you perfectly, he then asked the question, how would we keep those new clothes on? Because the temptation is to pull them off and to go back to our favorite old sweater, but it doesn't fit anymore. And Paul says, here's how you keep the new clothes on, by letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And now, Paul is continuing this theme that he began at the beginning of chapter three. Not only that there are new clothes for the new self, and not only how to keep them on by letting the peace of Christ rule, now Paul wants to see, have you been wearing them? (laughs) See, the clothes of the new self look great in the dressing room. (laughs) Everybody wants to have the new clothes fit them well, and they look great. The lighting is, is so that you will think you look good in the dressing room. It's like airplane bathrooms. Like, don't you feel like you look good in an airplane bathroom? Like, it's like they do the lighting. I'm like, man, I look great up here. And so that's how dressing rooms, like they want you to believe that you look great with compassion on, you look great with humility on. And so you've got these new clothes on and Paul says, that's awesome. Now let's see how you've been wearing them. Let's go home. Let's see how they look in real life with real lighting and not in the mirror that's meant to convince you you look good. Paul wants to know, how are these new clothes staying on? And the first place he goes with these new clothes for the new self is he goes home. So three things we're going to look at this morning from our text that guide us in this, keeping the new clothes on and how do they look on you. Is the primary setting for the new self, the primary theme of the new self, and the primary hopes of the new self. Primary setting for the new self primary theme of the new self, and primary hopes of the new self. So first, primary setting of the new self. Paul takes us home. In eight verses, every member of the Roman household is addressed. Wives, husbands, children, parents, bondservants, and masters. Bondservants and masters would have been a home relationship because what would have happened would someone would have gotten in debt through a business dealing or a bad crop year, and they would have had to take and borrow money from someone. And in order to pay that back, they would then have to go work off their debt in the home, work someone's land, work in the commerce of that family. They would have been a part of the home and eaten dinner there and done life there. And so Paul's addressing every possible relationship in a Roman household. Paul's giving instructions to the family system. He's talked a lot about the new self and the new clothes that come with the new self. And now he wants to see, hey, you want to know if they're really staying on or not? You want to know if you're really wearing them or not? Instead of just doing some show in the dressing room and they look good on you at the store, let's put these clothes on and go home. It's the primary setting of the new self. These New Testament household codes, as they're known, they appear all over the New Testament. Many other times in Paul, he has a very similar list. Peter does it in 1 Peter. Giving orders to the ethical uh, relationships that need to exist in a home. Now, it needs to be noted 
that these household codes are not necessarily a distinctly Christian idea. If you study ancient philosophy, ancient writings around the time of Paul, even in a couple centuries before, philosophers such as Aristotle and Didymus, they have very similar ethical lists for the household in Roman society and Greek society. And it says very similar things. Wives, submit to your husband. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, be gentle. And here's how, here's how their logic was working, these ancient philosophers that have very similar lists to Paul. They knew, philosophers knew, that in order for society to remain in order and at peace, in order for the culture to remain in, at peace and in order, it has to start in the home. So peace and order in the home creates peace and order in society. These philosophers are concerned with society being at peace and society being ordered. But Paul, let's remember Paul's context, and he makes some very um, distinctively Christian additions to this list of ethical guides for the home. Paul does care about peace and order in society, but our context, remember, is Paul is talking about the new self. And according to Paul... There is no better place, no better litmus test for the new self to be exposed and tested than in your family or in your home. Because for better or for worse, guess what? You are you at home. You are you where you live. So the question is, have you put on the new clothes of the new self? Well, before you answer that, let's go home and see. Because your spouse will tell us. Your roommates will tell us. Your children will tell us. Your parents will tell us. That's why Paul in this passage is taking us home, because where you live will bring out the real you, for better or for worse. You are you in the place where you call home. And even if you've moved out, even if you're in this room and you go, I don't live at home anymore, uh, please know this still applies to you. That, that reality wouldn't have necessarily existed in ancient Rome where you would have lived on your own in some foreign city. You would have always lived with your family until you had your own family, probably as a teenager, and then you had your own home. And so the, the principle here, the, 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 idea, the ideal that Paul is going for still applies to you. Who you are in the home where you live is what Paul is after here. His focus, Paul says, please, 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 please don't miss this. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago when Paul first introduced the new self. But Paul still has his same focus. Paul's focus on the new self is still you, it's not them out there. Paul's concerned with you. Do you know what a healthy community is made up of? Healthy individuals. Do you know what a healthy family is made up of? Healthy individuals. And so Paul is saying, I, I'm, I'm gonna address everybody here. Wives, don't worry. He addresses the husbands too. Children, don't worry. He addresses the parents too. But not only is home the place where you are you, home is also, and Paul understands this, home is also perhaps the most powerful place for redemption to work out and be displayed. Mother Teresa uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. In her acceptance speech, she is pleading on behalf of the poor. She's pleading on behalf of the peace of Christ and the love of Christ to rule in the world and for the rich to see the poor and to see that they are, that they are made in God's image. And she's pleading to advocate, to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And then she closes her whole speech, her acceptance speech. It's beautiful. Go read it. She closes her whole speech with pleading for peace and the love of Christ to rule in the world. This is how she says, this is how she closes. She admonishes the listener, the, the world that's watching. She says, the first place that the peace and love of Christ needs to work itself out is in your home. You wanna work for world peace? You wanna settle world peace? Start at home. 
That's where the world will change. You want to change the world? Great. Let's go to the place where the best and hardest work is to be done. World change, cultural change, global change doesn't happen out there. It doesn't happen with systems and with government and the people who are supposed to be creating change. Do you know where world change happens? It starts in the mundane places of our lives. It starts with every day. It starts in the home. One biblical scholar that I read this week put it this way, Paul is laying out for the church here a manifesto for the new self, painting a vision for how believers ought to conduct themselves in their new communities and thereby epitomizing the triumph of God in Christ. Here's what he's saying. There is no better place to display the kingdom of Jesus to the world than in the home and the relationships that exist there. The new self with its new clothes, is a part of a new community, is a part of a new kingdom. And so go up and down Paul's logical stair ladder here. The new self has new clothes that is a part of a new community, which is part of a new kingdom. And that new kingdom is a billboard for the world to see who Jesus is. And now, follow that back down. You wanna be a part of this new kingdom and shine the glory of Jesus to the world? That happens in the context of your new community, which is made up of new families, which is made up of new selves with new clothes. And so Paul is wanting to change the world, and how's he doing that? By starting at home. The new self is most tested, most revealed, and most redeemed in the relationships of the home. This is the primary setting of the new self. It's the family systems, it's familial relationships. So that's the primary setting, is the home. And now Paul wants to guide us into this new self at home, and he guides us with a common theme here, or to fit the metaphor of new clothes for the new self, he has a common thread here. And this new thread relates immensely to the clothes of the new self. It's tied to all the virtues that he talked about a couple weeks ago, the virtues that is the clothing of the new self, compassion and humility and gentleness and forgiveness. This one thread that Paul pulls for every member of the home, this one thread relates to all of the clothes. This thread is a part of all the pieces of clothing, and it's what every member of the, of the household must wrestle with. And I know when I say this word and this theme out loud, which I will in just a second, everyone in the room is going to cringe just a little bit. I know that when I say this word out loud, this new thread of the new clothes of the new self that when I say this thread that relates to everybody in the, in the, in the new clothes, in the new community, in the new kingdom, uh, everyone's going to have a, like a Pavlovian reaction to it. I know that there's pain around this word. I know that this word has been abused. I know this word has been used to, to, to dictate and to cause a lot of harm in this room. And the theme, the, the primary theme, this thread of the new self is the theme of submission he says it multiple times in this. Wives submit to husbands. Children submit to parents. Bondservants submit to masters. And husbands, parents, and masters submit to the Lord. Every member of the household is called to submit here. Make no mistake about it. Every party at the house, every member of the home is called to submit. And every one of us bucks against the idea of submission. All of us. Submission, in fact, may be the most offensive biblical concept alive today. Certainly, submission in the language of submission, like we said, has been abused and misused throughout history, 
And the mention of it conjures up images of injustice and heartache and pain, and that's legit. That's real. I'm not trying to dismiss that reality. But even without the abuse of the word, even without the misuse of the word, biblically speaking, the notion of submission in the modern day is the greatest of all the fronts and insults to me because submission by its very nature suggests that I am not in control of me. Submission by its very nature suggests that I am not, I am not my own authority and I am not my own autonomous ruler. Submission seemingly takes away all of my freedom and we love our freedom. We almost never functionally practice willful, voluntary submission. If I don't like my boss, I quit my job. If I don't like my school, I'll transfer. If I don't like my roommates, I'll move. If I don't like what I'm dealing with, I will decide something else. I will choose to not continue to submit to this reality. I will make this relationship or this existence of my context and my circumstances, if it is not what I want, I will not continue to submit to it. I'm, I'm in a capitalist society. I don't have to keep going to Trader Joe's if they charge me too much. I can go somewhere else. Sorry, it's Whole Foods. They charge way too much. But I don't, have to, I don't have to keep choosing to submit myself to something that I don't like. I almost never practice willful, voluntary submission on my own. Because that would take away my ability to do what I want with my life. YOLO has no room for submission. If I only live once and I've got to max out this life and I've got to get what I want and make this life epic for me, I have no time for submission because submission takes away the idea that I'm in charge of my life and I will choose what's best for me. And so I'm never thinking submissively. Naturally speaking, I'm not thinking, man, I, I wanna keep submitting to this thing that I don't enjoy doing. Our collective cultural commitment to no submission is powerfully but subtly displayed, perhaps in no better place than the Virginia state flag. Any Virginians in the house? Can you come draw your flag for us, please? Um, don't raise your hand in this room. Uh, you will get, you will be forced to submit. Uh, the, sorry. On the Virginia state flag, there is a picture of a man standing with his foot on top of a king whose crown has fallen beside him and his foot is over his neck. And underneath that image says these words in Latin, sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. This flag was adopted in 1776. It was a battle cry of the Revolutionary War. If you try to rule over us, we will kill you. Now, I'm not making an American history or Revolutionary War critique. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying that built into your cultural DNA, what you have grown up believing is that you will not submit to any ruler. It's built into all of our souls, this idea that submission is weakness and submission is restrictive. And certainly, like the Revolutionary War proved, they had had pain and abuse from a monarch and from a dictator-style ruler. And so they were saying, we will not subject ourselves to that anymore. And there's a lot of that that's great. What it's done, though, on the trickle-down effect is convince all of us, I will bow down to no one. I will put my foot on king's throats, and I will not submit myself to any ruler. But if we can take a step back from the offense of this word for just a moment, and, and we can, this, this is so hard for all of us to do in our individualistic society. This is hard. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm joining you in the pain of this. 
What we often do is we read our pain and our story and our experience back into Scripture. And we say, well, my definition, my working definition of this word, my context for this word is bad, therefore it has to be bad when I read it on the page. But if we can step back from it for a moment, if we can, if we can let our pain with the word not dictate how we interpret the word biblically, we might see something a little bit more clearly. It's that in our quest and in our demand for autonomy, we have actually, this is the irony of it, we have submitted ourselves to that ideal. We are not as free as we think we are. We are slaves to the ideal of autonomy. The notion that you and I are actually free in the sense of having nothing ruling over us, that's a facade. As Bob Dylan said, you gotta serve somebody. And the point is this, do you know what all of us unknowingly and knowingly have submitted ourselves to? We have submitted. We've submitted to the idea that nothing will rule over us. And now we're slaves to that ideal. In our quest for authority, in our quest for autonomy, we have submitted to the idea that we can be our own rulers. And we are now slaves to the idea of autonomy. We obey it, we follow it, and we allow that idea to rule over us. And here's what begins to happen. I bring the weight of that idea, I bring the weight of that commitment that I will be my own ruler and I will rule over me. And now that I have to have my own autonomy and I'm so committed to that idea, here's what my life begins to look like. There's a mounting pressure now, because I am my own ruler, of choosing what is right, what is best, what is perfect, what is epic, and what is awesome in all circumstances. If I'm a free autonomous ruler, then I have to get all of my decisions right because I am the autonomy. I am the one who's in charge of making decisions for my epic life. And so no one can tell me what to do, which now puts all of those chips in my bag. And now I've got to be the one to make all the right decisions. So it looks like this. I've got to choose the right school. I've got to choose the right spouse. I've got to choose the right kids' names. I've got to choose the right savings plan. I've got to choose the right salary. I've got to choose the right place to go to dinner tonight. I've got to choose the right place to vacation. I've got to choose the right political things to get involved with. I've got to choose the right books to read. I've got to choose the right podcast to listen to. I've got to choose the right church to go to. I've got to, all the things that I'm now mounting and wearing in the pressure of having committed myself to being my own autonomous ruler, now I'm buckling under the weight of having to do it all perfectly. And now submitting to that idea that I am autonomous, I must choose, turns into I must choose best and I must choose the life that equals no pain. And we're all suffering underneath our submission to that idea. I wear the burden of writing my own story. I wear the burden of having my story have to be unique and epic and choosing never to submit to anything. And in so choosing to never submit to anything, I've become a slave to never submitting. (laughs) But biblically speaking, submission is required for every role of every member of the house. Submission is a required virtue of every Christian. And so... Just entertain this idea for a moment. What if submission wasn't a dirty word? What if submission wasn't a four-letter word? What if, I know this is crazy. Seriously, I know this is so hard to, to even imagine. What if when Paul used the word submission, it was for your good? What if Paul and Jesus had the best of intentions at the heart of this command? 
What if you and I were made to submit ourselves? What if the call to submit was actually, this is crazy, what if the call to submit was actually stepping into becoming more and more human, a more alive human? What if the call to submit was the call to me being more alive and more free? What if autonomy wasn't where freedom was? Is that possible? I know that our stories don't say that. Is it possible that scripture is saying that? Is it possible that our history won't let us believe that submission equals freedom, but the Bible's saying, hey, you're bucking against the wrong thing. Six tyrannous, thus always to tyrants, will kill you. You will not be free if you are committed to always being your own ruler. Paul here wants to lead us to health. That's why Paul here addresses every party in the home, and every party in the home is called to submit and when all parties, he says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 when he has a very similar list, that all parties are called to submit to each other. It's mutual submission. All parties are called to submit on some level. All parties are submitting in Paul's display of the beautiful Christian home. So we're just going to look at one of these relationships. I just want to, we, could, we don't have time to talk about all of the parties and all of the inner relationships. We're going to talk about one, the one that kind of convicted me the most this week. They all could have, but I'll only let this one convict me the most. And, and we're going to see maybe how Paul is trying to lead us with this ideal and with this invitation to something that is a beautiful display of the new self in the new community, in the new kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children of all ages, obey your parents. They're looking out for you. They're for you. They want your good. And Paul here says, obey them and submit to them and their position in your life. They have been placed over you. Submit to them and obey them and honor them, Paul in Scripture would say. And I was a child. Maybe I should use a present tense uh, verb there. I, I was a child once who had parents, lived in a home. I also have children now myself. I know that that's a hard ask. That's a really hard ask for kids, for children, but imagine this, children. Imagine your father and your mother. What if they listened to the very next line? Fathers, also mothers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. A, a good way to understand that, that uh, imperative from Paul, the do not provoke them, do not discourage them, Paul would be saying this. When you discipline them, don't make it about you. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> he didn't want, he's not submitting. I need you back for an illustration, please. <laughs> Here's what Paul is saying when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That word provoke is this action of stirring up something. It's the idea that the discipline would be more about me than it is about loving you. So I can tell you as a parent, the trillion times I've failed at disciplining, correcting my kids because it's all about me. I'm tired of you annoying me. I'm tired of this continuing to happen and my peace and comfort is being threatened right now and so I'm gonna discipline you but it's really about me and not about you. Or here's another one that I, how I provoke my children. I, I begin to see some like willful disobedience from my children and then I begin to imagine how the next 10 or 15 years are gonna go and I'm trying to discipline the next 15 years out of them right now. And that discipline is about me, it's not about them. I'm provoking them, I'm discouraging them. So children are called to obey their parents, and fathers and parents are called to not provoke and discourage their children in the way they deal with them. 
Now just imagine in the home you grew up in or the home you are currently in if these commands were heeded by all parties. Children, what if your parents never got under your skin? What if they never talked down to you? What if they never raised their voice at you? What if they never misunderstood you? What if they never crossed emotional boundaries with you? What if they never treated you like you weren't your age? Can you imagine if that were the ideal of your parents? Can you imagine obeying them? Would that maybe be an easier ask if that was true of your parents? Or parents, fathers, can you imagine if your kids always listened to you the first time, always obeyed first and then asked questions later, always trusted you when you told them something, always believed you that you were looking out for them and believed that you loved them more than anything? Can you imagine if they were excited to see you and wanted to be around you? Can you imagine that? Now, fathers and parents, Can you imagine how easy it would be to not provoke your children and not discourage them if they acted like that? (laughs) Because this is the ideal. The children would obey and trust and listen to and the fathers and parents would not provoke and not discourage. This is the ideal. And can can you just imagine the beauty that Paul's painting right here? Do you know the peace and the joy that would reign in this home if both, just in that one line, those two parties of that relationship were acting that way? They were both heeding the encouragement from Paul here? But this is what makes this call in the home stand out from the cultural equivalents back in ancient Rome. This this is what makes this call from Paul part of what makes it distinctively Christian. It's that each member of the household is called to these submissive practices regardless of the actions of the other. Paul's call to every party never has an asterisk by it that says, hey, fathers, don't provoke your children, asterisk, unless they're just acting a fool, then you can provoke them. He doesn't say that. Others' dismissal of their responsibility in the home doesn't negate yours. As in, parents, you are called not to provoke your children and not to discourage them, even if they're disobeying you. And the same goes across all the relationships that Paul lists here, husbands and wives and masters and bondservants and parents and children, all of it, that each party, that's Paul's focus, is you. This is what you're called to. This is how you're called to submit and lay down your will for the sake of the good of the family unit. Now, please, I'm, I'm putting an asterisk by this. I have to say this out loud. What this is not saying is that if your parents are abusing you, you don't have to stay in the house. If your husband is abusing you, you don't have to stay in the house. That's not what, Paul is not abusive. He is not calling blind submission. What he's calling to is submission in the Lord, and we're gonna get to that in just a minute. Please understand, if that's you, you need to reach out to us, to our leadership. We will help you get out of that. That's the asterisk that has to be said because this passage has been so abused. But Paul is not talking about that. What Paul is talking about is that in the home, each member of the home is called to something, and that calling is not dependent on the performance of the other party. In Christianity, the healthy, stronger party always moves first. The stronger party is always to look out for the weaker party. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we look for the weaker party in our society and in our home, and we look for them, and we use our power, and we use our position to serve them That's what Paul's calling us to here. That's what Paul's calling every member of the household to, to submit part of their will and lay it down for the good of the family. This is the ideal for the Christian home. 
that each party would be seeking for the other to flourish, that each party would be trusting and serving and honoring the other parties in the home. It is the display for the watching world to see the beautiful new self in the new community, in the new kingdom. This is the Christian ideal. The home is the setting, the primary setting of the new self, and submission is the primary thread. That's the ideal. So I came across a C.S. Lewis essay this week. This guy, I don't, I'm like, did he just, how, how much did he write that no one's ever even heard of? How, how have I not even ever heard of this essay that he wrote? It's called The Sermon and the Lunch. Google it. It's profound. He talks about this, uh, this interaction, this experience that he has where he's in a Sunday service listening to this pastor talk about, he might even be preaching, he doesn't say what passage the pastor is preaching out of. It might be Colossians 3. He's preaching about the ideal Christian home and the beauty that should exist there and, and, it, and it needs to be a certain way and all the life and joy and, and glory that exists in the Christian home. But what C.S. Lewis notes, what strikes him is that he was at that pastor's house the day before and it was far from ideal. <laughs> He was at the lunch. He was at a lunch at the house, the sermon and the lunch. And not only was this a crushing ideal that the pastor was laying on the shoulders of the people to, to be the perfect Christian home, it was spoken in utter hypocrisy. C.S. Lewis notes, all confidence had departed from the room because no one believed him and no one could live up to what he was talking about. So C.S. Lewis goes on to make five observations about this experience, about hearing the ideal Christian home presented in hypocrisy, and then what is the listener to do with that? First thing he notes is this. He says, since the fall, like the fall of man, since Genesis 3, no organization or way of life has the tendency to go right. <laughs> Meaning this, it's all broke. Every system in the universe is broken because of sin. Shalom has been shattered. We talked about that last week. Shalom has been vandalized. But, but, even though nothing is as it should be, and no, no organization or way of life has the tendency to go right, but at the same time, if a doctor tells you about the dangers of alcoholism and what it will do to your body, and he himself is an alcoholic, that doesn't mean his wisdom is broke. So don't let the hypocrisy of the deliverer of wisdom Stop you from listening to the wisdom. Don't let the, the hypocrisy of the one who might give the ideal, don't let that stop you from hearing the ideal with fresh eyes and fresh ears. And Lewis closes with this. He says, he pleads with the church to begin to give practical advice on the high, hard, lovely, and adventurous art of really creating a Christian home. He says it's so much better than me. To begin to give practical advice on the high, hard, lovely, and adventurous art of really creating the Christian home. So this is the ideal, what we've talked about, that every party would be mutually submitting and seeking the good of every party in the home. But please don't let the brokenness of the hypocrisy of the deliverer, don't let the brokenness of your own hypocrisy or the family you grew up in don't let that negate the high, hard, lovely, and adventurous art of really creating the Christian home. So in this mess and in this pain of our family systems, in this setting and with this thread, how do we ever find hope to do this? How do we ever find hope to submit our rights and our wills for the good of our family? Which leads us to our last point, the primary hopes of the new self. 
We've mentioned this, but what I know is scary about submission in general is that we've all got stories. We've all got tapes. And they can be minor or they can be major, but we've all got stories from the past when we've risked submitting to someone, and then instead of that risk being handled with care, it turned into a scar. Memories of relationships where submission should have been dealt with gently and honorably, but instead pain was inserted. But in this passage, make no mistake, the members of the home, every party is called to submit. And just for a point of clarification, in almost every sentence in our passage, it's eight verses, but six times in almost every sentence of the passage that was read for us, the members of the home are not primarily called to submit to the other parties. Six times in eight verses, members of the household are called to submit to the Lord. This is what makes this a distinctively Christian list of of household ethics. Every party is not primarily called to submit to other parties. They are called to submit to the Lord. Verse 23 and 24 says it most explicitly. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. For you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As in, wherever God has placed you, whatever family system God has placed you in, he's asking you to submit to him. And then secondarily, that might look like submitting to them. It might look like leaving them by submitting to him. But he's calling you to submit to him first. This is the issue. And we know this, but at the heart of submission is trust. That you don't submit to something or someone that you don't trust. Because that would be unwise. This is what parents know. I was talking with a friend this week on our staff, and she was saying what they've been working on at home, repetitively, is obey first, ask questions later. Like, would you just obey what I'm asking you to do? And then we'll have our, um, our, 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 our dialogue about this. Our, you, know, you can present all your facts and exhibit A and evidence as to why that was a bad idea. But obey first, and then we'll talk later. And she's pleading with it because she's saying, hey, if you're ever in the middle of the street, I need you to obey and not stop and ask why you need to get out of the street. I need you to just obey and then ask questions later. And beneath that, what she's asking is, will you just trust me enough to obey me first? Would you trust me to submit to what I'm asking you and then we'll talk? But submission requires trust. And this passage is clear six times over. Every Christian is being asked to submit to and therefore trust the Lord. So this is perhaps the scariest sentiment of the entire morning. Can you submit to the Lord where you are? Can you surrender yourself to the authority of the Lord where you currently are and trust him in what he's asking you to do in your home and in your family system? But before you answer that question, let me tell you two things that this passage says about the Lord that you're being asked to submit to and trust. Because it tells us about the Lord, the Lord that you're being asked six times over to submit to and trust. Let me tell you what the passage says, two things about him that are your hope and are your power for submitting to him. Two things. The first is this, is that the Lord is just. Look at verse 25. He says this, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with the Lord. And then verse 4, 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And by implication there, you have a master that is just and fair. Here's the guarantee of this passage. 
the promise of this passage. The pain caused by the abuse of power in your life will one day be made right by the Lord's justice. He says it twice. The wounds you've received have not gone unseen. The scars you have have not gone unnoticed. And abusive earthly masters will one day meet their true master. And he is just. The story of those who abuse power will end in justice for them. They are not the most powerful entities in the universe. And Paul promises his here twice. They will receive justice. The Lord will not overlook abusers of power. So, have you been the victim of someone abusing their power in your home? I know you have. I know some of your stories. I know you've been the victim of people in the home not submitting themselves and abusing their position. The Lord is going to make right and he will wipe away all of your tears and he will bring justice and healing to everything that's been broken by the abuse of power. In fact, he's so just, he's got such a commitment to justice and healing and righteousness flowing in his new heavens and new earth. He's so just that abuse done by those in power to weaker parties, according to scripture, it may be the thing that stirs up his anger and his wrath the most. And the reason why it's what stirs up his anger and his wrath and his justice the most is the second thing that this passage tells us about our master. Not only is the master that we are called to submit to a just master, and not only one day will our just master make all things right, our just master knows firsthand, he knows so painfully the power and the beauty of submission. Because in the person of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus practiced submission. The one, the entity in the universe with the most power gave it up. He submitted himself. The one with the most power submitted himself. Why? For the sake of the weaker party, his bride, the church. Jesus submitted to his father's will to go and rescue for himself a bride at the cost of his blood. Jesus practiced submission. Scripture is very clear about this. All the submission language in this passage of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter, all of that language, that word of submission, the same verb is used of Jesus multiple times. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. Why? To get for himself a prize. Who is that? You Scripture generally assigns different roles to the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture assigns different roles to each member of the Godhead, and here's how it generally goes. The Father appoints, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. This is not a doctrine on the Trinity, but here's why I'm telling you that. When, when it says that the Son accomplishes, what he's accomplishing is the plan set out before him by the Father, and the Son had to submit to that. But in that submission, please know that the Bible is very clear. All members of the Trinity are equal in power, equal in glory, and equal in worth. But each has a different role in the plan of redemption. The submission by Jesus is what accomplished your salvation. And so here's the, here's the ask for all parties in the house. When you submit, you're in great company. <laughs> 
Jesus submitted himself to without losing a shred of dignity or a shred of worth. So let me ask you this. How glad are you that Jesus submitted himself? Jesus submitted himself for our sake. And so please hear this. This is the second hope of the new self. The call to submit comes from a master who has submitted himself to astronomically and eternally more than you. So the hopes of the new self in the pangs of submission, your master is just. And the judge of all the earth will not let one shred of injustice go, especially the injustice when power is abused and submission is trampled on. He has promised that his justice will one day rain down and bring healing from all of your sadness, and he will turn all of your sadness into joy. Your master is so just that he is currently setting a table for you right now in a land where none of your enemies or none of your demons or none of your scars exist. His justice is your hope. He is the one who will one day make justice roll down from the hills, and no sadness and no pain will go unredeemed. That's what Paul is saying in part right here. You have a master in heaven, and he loves justice. And that's who you're being asked to submit to. But then the second thing is also true and is equally as powerful. Your submission is to a master who has also submitted himself for your sake. Can you submit yourself to him, father, mother, wife, husband, child? Because when you submit yourself to him, he is the kind of master that is always using his power for your good. He is the kind of master who is ordaining your life to heal you and not to harm you. He is the one who submitted himself that you might live. This is your master. This is your Jesus. And he is worthy of your trust and your submission. Let's pray. Jesus, submission is hard. And it's scary, and there's pain, and there's wounds, and there's shame. And so give us the hope that this passage declares, the hope of our just master who has promised us that one day our master will make all things new. But give us not only the hope of one day, give us the hope of this day. The hope that says the that our submission is to one who knows submission and used your submission for our ultimate good. We, we need a vision of that. We need a, um, a fresh encounter with that, Jesus, that we might unclench our fists and open our hands to you. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.